Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, I have Alan Sang, founder of 88 Owls Negotiation Coach, as my guest. Alan, first of all, why 88 Owls? Hi, Marcus. There's a little bit of a long story there, but the, the short story of 88 Owls is a partner of, of mine and, and I were working on the business, and we're matching uh, businesses and consultants. And we were coming up names, and it's very hard to come up with names these days because you got to make sure that we get a domain, right? So we figured, how about we match a set of numbers with a word or an animal? So okay. we tried different numbers like <laughs> 99 owls, and the only one that was available was 88. And the reason it was owls, because we're both working with consultants, and, and typically consultants bring a different perspective to the clients. They're like the owls that work of the farmer. They remove pests. They can see in the dark. They have a different perspective. They are considered, quote, unquote, wise right <laughs> and you can't hear them coming they come and go at will all right so so tell me this could you give one to two minute summary of your journey to get to where you are how did you get to become a negotiation coach of international standing to talk about negotiation coaching i have to almost go back to my history of where i was born where i grew up i was born in hong kong i grew up in africa there were 15 years went to an international school came to the U.S. 30 years ago. And the reason I bring that up is because wherever I went, I was a minority. So as a minority, you have to learn to fit in. In order to fit in, you have to communicate. You have to make deals. You have to be likable. You have to have friends that like working with you or people that want to work with you. So communication, negotiation, that became very important to me about 15 years ago, 2005, I started uh, going to consulting and coaching. And then I met uh, Jim Camp of Camp Negotiation System. And he was my yeah. mentor for many years until he passed away in 2014 in November. Remember that vividly because that's when you lose your mentor. That's a day you yeah. just go, whoops. And since then, I, I've just been, uh, since 2005, I've just been uh, working with companies and coaching them, keeping them safe and helping them build strong agreements. Excellent. Well, I, I'm a big fan of Jim Camp's work. It was the best negotiation program I'd ever come across because I'd seen all the stuff with Karras and all of that. But Great. Jim's was so refreshing. And Starting With No was a wonderful book. It's very aligned with what we teach in Sandler. Yeah. You know, the principles, even the language, the framework, because I know that he was a Sandler client for many years as well. Um, There's many similarities there, absolutely. You know his stuff is better than Sandler, right? Mm, okay, you win. I'm not uh, gonna... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're going to uh, make me lose my license. <laughs> you can't admit that on air. <laughs> I can. I'm not going to fight you. If you want to think that way, that's cool. You win. I'm a faster runner. I say I, I used to learn martial arts, and the best technique is to run. run. Yeah, when you're built like me, probably not. The best thing is to cripple the person next to you and then right. walk away. But, okay, so let's start with negotiation. I'm always really rude about negotiating because in my experience, when salespeople negotiate, what they essentially do is give stuff away for free. And I have this hierarchy. You have salespeople, then you have order takers, and they're basically the gum on the bottom of your shoe. And <laughs> the dirt that they pick up and the negotiators, and they end up as estate agents, realtors, in this country, in the UK, they're seen as being the lowest of the low. Sorry for any of you good estate agents out there. I'm sure there are two or three of you. Now, what really is negotiating? Because it's not just spewing your guts and giving stuff away to try and buy the business. I get that. I've interviewed Gary Nesner. I'm familiar with Chris Voss's work, Jim Camp, you. You're very different. So what, what does negotiation really stand for? What's it all about? Negotiation, at the end of the day, when we boil it down, it's about how can I make the best decision for myself and how can I influence the decision on my counterpart's side, right? As soon as we have to make a decision or we, have, we need our counterpart to make a decision, we're already in a negotiation. From the minute we need the counterpart to introduce me to a decision maker, to the board, to agree to a meeting, to take a look at a proposal, we are already in a negotiation. A that lot sounds of times, like a sale to me. 
Well, how do you define sales? Getting your fees on your terms and both sides walk away happy and satisfied eventually. And it's about having real control over the process of how you get to the decision. Okay. I like the definition that Jim Kemp shares in his book. You look at in the dictionary a lot of times and say, what is a negotiation? They'll say an agreement. You look up agreement, it says it's a negotiation. So it goes nowhere, right? So he looked at, he said the the definition that he embraces from an old Oxford English dictionary that says, it's the human effort that brings about agreement between two or more parties with each one having the right to veto. Very interesting because one of the critical principles that we teach is a concept called upfront contracting. And it's all about getting little agreement after little agreement. So you know, by the time you reach the final decision, it's easy instead of trying to make one big decision. So I, I get it. So but essentially, we're teaching the same thing to a large degree with different nomenclature. That's a very long word for my uh, crusty old tongue. It could be. It could be. Well, I've seen what you were talking about earlier about I've seen salespeople that would uh, actually at the first meeting tell me we don't negotiate. And I'll say, you don't negotiate? No, we don't. I say, how come? I say, well, they tell us what they want. We tell them how much it is. And if they don't like the price, that's when we negotiate. So I say, well, if you look at negotiation that way, that's pretty much like what I do when I go to a flea market, right? Yeah. Just haggling over a price, but negotiation isn't that. Absolutely. The real value is not giving money away. It's finding an accommodation that both sides are happy to live with eventually. Everyone knows how to compromise. I mean, I don't have to teach. I don't know how to teach compromise. Well, some people do teach that. They have a systematic way of how to compromise gracefully, but that's not what we do. I'm really curious because, you know, one of the things that you're often taught and we even teach is, you know, win, win or no deal. And I read Chris Voss's stuff, and he says, forget win-win. What are your thoughts on that? When my friends want to push my buttons, they bring up the word (laughs) Mm win-win. They get a three-minute lecture on what win-win is. But at the end of the day, win-win is really just an outcome, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of people use that outcome as a principle or a way to negotiate. The problem is, your definition of win-win is different from my definition of win-win. And I joke a little bit about this. It's kind of tongue-in-cheek. But when a lion wants to eat its prey, win-win to the lion is he gets to eat you and you get to die very quickly. <laughs> okay. I have uh, had the privilege of negotiating with buyers for Walmart, Kmart, and Target. One of the first things they always bring us like, hey, uh, Young man, what we want here is a, a win-win agreement. So what they're trying to say is we want to buy 100,000 widgets. And uh, next minute, they're going to beat you down the price if they buy so many millions. Uh-huh. And then the end, they come back to, but we want 100,000 releases at a time. Uh-huh. So Absolutely. the win-win to them is we get to, you get to sell a lot of products to us and work really, really hard for the lowest possible margin. Absolutely. And that's great if you don't know how to sell and you only want to have one customer. I'd rather mm-hmm. have 10 customers and have to maximize the maximized margin than to work with one client. Absolutely. What you keep matters more than what you make. Exactly. There is someone very prominent who says that he's the world's greatest negotiator, but it always feels like that is very much a win-lose kind of outcome when the president talks about it. Uh, I'm curious, um, if you want to do business with people long term, if they yeah. resent you and they resent the outcome, then that is a problem. I get that you want to get the best possible deal. At what point do you have to draw a line and say, okay, we have to leave some fat in it for them so that they don't feel resentful and they don't feel like they have to get even? Well, that is, the minute you even start thinking about that, you're already thinking in a, in a win-win compromise mindset already. Okay. Right? Help me out of it. All right. So the first thing we think of in a negotiation is what is, uh, what is the mission and purpose for the other side? What is a valid mission and purpose? What is it that they want? What is their pain? What are they trying to achieve? What is the desired outcome? What do they get 
working with you now and into the future. So that's all you're going to focus on. How do you deliver benefits to the other side? At that point, you are not even thinking about yourself. You are not thinking about what you're going to get. You're not thinking about how you're going to how you're going to benefit out of that. All your conversation, all your mindset, every single energy that you have is focused on your counterpart. What do they want out of this? Absolutely. Right? And only when you do that are you actually insulated from desperation, neediness, fear, all those anxiety that salespeople have that goes away when they actually focus on the benefit of the other side. How do I deliver value? Fantastic. Again, very aligned with what we teach. What we see is that salespeople tend to be very eye-centered. It's all about me, 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 what I can get. And if you haven't been able to establish what the other party needs and wants, and you are unclear about how you're going to be able to get there, then chances are what you're going to be doing is projecting your needs and wants. And that leaves you exposed because your emphasis, your focus, your attention isn't on what matters. People buy for their reasons, not your reasons. I think what you're saying is if you're in a negotiation and you understand what it is that they want, you always have the right and capability to walk away. Absolutely. you don't have to see it through. Absolutely. The fact is we all know what we want walking into a deal. To continually thinking about that is just counterproductive. You're wasting time, energy, emotions on what you want. You already know what you want. So you go to a deal. The first thing you want to do is what is the problem and can you solve it? Because if you can't, just gracefully fade away, right? Because maybe at a later date, you can't solve it. But to try to sell something, I've seen people say, well, I do not want to walk away from a deal. These are people that have studied other ways of negotiating. They may say, well, the best alternative to a negotiated agreement is to have an agreement to have something. I don't want to work away with nothing. I don't want to walk away with nothing. Therefore, I have to come up with a backup sale. Mm -hmm. What's the worst case scenario? What is my break even? Right? That is just desperation. I agree. I think the BATNA, the best alternative to a negotiated agreement, is a a handicap. It's like carrying a, a great big weight on your back that you don't need. I would challenge one thing, which is in my experience, very often buyers, prospects have no idea what they really want. When we get invited in, quite often they invite us in and they tell us about what they want to get away from. And they tell us what nirvana looks like. But more often than not, what they're doing is they're presenting us with a bunch of symptoms. So how do you use core principles? Because I know that you and I both agree on this. How do you use core principles to get to what people really want? I mean, we have the standard asking good questions, doing research, listening and stuff like that. But let me give you an example. Let me give you a story. Do we have five minutes for me to tell a story? Of course, we've got plenty of time. All I can right. always edit it out if it's boring. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I have a client and they had a customer customers getting parts from our client, they were defective. A lot of them, about 40% of them were defective. And they usually have a defect rate of like 0.5% or maybe even one or 1.25%. So at 40%, that's unacceptable. And this went on for months, months. And finally, I got a copy on the email and uh, my client's customer says, "I, I went on a website and I looked at your mission and purpose, delivering great parts on time, laughable. (laughs) And so I get a copy of it and I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, what's going on? So I dig into it. And apparently the parts that my clients made for them was failing in the field. It was leaking oil. It was a manifold. And so tearing that thing down, shipping it back, all the labor is costing about $50,000 a piece. Easiest thing was they were mad. They were threatening to pull all the work away from my clients. This is worth a lot of money. And they've been in business for decades. So... We looked at what's going on. I got involved. I, I pull in all the uh, the communication. I put on a conference table, the conference table about 15 feet and filled with paper. And so what happened is I found out that this part has been, we're delivering it defective for months. 
and they've been experiencing. So no doubt they'll be upset, no doubt. So we had to de-escalate that. But through the research, the first step in a, in a conflict is just to slow things down and calm emotions and do some research, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what I was doing. I was looking at the stuff and I come to find out years ago, my client took on this project and they couldn't go abroad to do it because they tried to save money and go abroad, but it could not be made. So they asked my client to make it for them. And it was a very difficult part. No other supplier wanted to touch it. So my client took it, made it, and it's not optimal. So what I did is we looked over all the notes, called the clients, apologized, de-escalated, and there's a whole process in that. And then we said, when we looked at this, we simply shouldn't have taken this project on. You tell us where you like us to ship this, uh, this patterns, and we'll be glad to do that transition as smoothly as possible. My client's customer said, no, 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 no. That will be the last thing we want to hear from you. And so we said, this part is very difficult. I'm not sure that we should continue making it because it's problematic. We have a perfect record. Like quality is like parts per million. We are like almost perfect. And this one is ruining our records. And so they said, well, what would it take for you guys to continue to make it for us? So you see what happened? It went from we were horrible suppliers to can you continue doing this favor for us. So following the principles, slowing things down, doing research, de-escalating, helping them stay calm, and then giving them the right to say no to us, actually turned the whole relationship around. And solution was, we did not have to compromise. Understandably, the account manager wanted to say, well, why don't we just split the difference? The $50,000 teardown cost, we'll split the difference. or he came up with, there was an invoice they owe us that is about that value. Let's just call it even. The problem is the minute we do that, we are going to admit to this problem and we're going to have to fix every teardown from now on. There may be thousands in the field. The end solution was this customer realizing that they did not spec the product properly. My client made it to spec. And so they had to build a testing facility to pressure test these manifolds before they mounted it. So now all their equipment is 100% tested. We didn't have to compromise not even one penny by following these principles. This is very closely aligned to what we teach. First of all, slow down to speed up. And you need to take the emotional attachment out of the dialogue. Because the moment you're emotionally attached, your ego is hooked. And you take one of three positions on the drama triangle of victim, persecutor, or rescuer. So your account manager was playing the role of rescuer. The customer was playing the role of upset victim, who then went into persecutor mode. In fact, my favorite philosopher, Bruce Lee, was asked, what's the best way to avoid a punch? And he said, be somewhere else. And (laughs) The somewhere else is what we call the winner's triangle. It's a fabulously elegant solution where instead of being a victim, you're vulnerable, which is, yep, we're sorry. We recognize that we're at fault. Then you're empathic. Appreciate how important this is. And then you assert yourself. Would you like us to ship the pattern somewhere else in order that you can get someone else to manufacture it? And that would be a classic example of using the winner's triangle where you can be authentic without compromising and you plant your feet, you establish clear boundaries and you give them the right to say no. And it's a fantastic approach. And unfortunately, I think this is the kind of stuff that should be taught in schools and it needs to be more prevalent. But everywhere you look, you know, every family that you know of Every television program, dramas, soap operas, the news, reality TV, all propagates that drama triangle. Right. It's working other people's misery. And for you to feel okay, you need to feel not, uh, find someone who's more not okay than you, which is what the client was doing. They were angry. They weren't feeling great. So they were taking a piece out of your account manager. And his natural instinct there was split the difference or agree to create a precedent that would harm the business for years and years. So that was a fantastic story, and I'm delighted that you shared it. Share with me some other principles that you teach your clients, because I I think we're on a winning wicket here. 
other principles would be just uh, making sure that uh, you're respectful. Respect is a big thing because you can see when people go into rage or anger mode is when they feel they have been disrespected. Disrespect almost trigger a response as though someone is physically being threatened. So in a negotiation or during a negotiation, we show our counterpart utmost respect, even when we disagree with them. That's a key, uh, key principle to follow for us. This then raises another question because I absolutely agree with that. What I'm curious about is establishing equal business stature. And this feeds into another core principle that I teach, which is that you have rights as a seller and as a professional negotiator, you have rights. And if you don't know what they are, you can't possibly assert them or enforce them. And I'd be curious to hear from you, as a negotiator, what are your rights? My basic, uh, we go into basic human rights, right? (laughs) My right to breathe, my right to drink water and eat. Well, my right, these are basic human rights. We would like the other side to respect us. And that's what we want to work towards because until you get that, it's going to be very hard for you to negotiate on an even playing ground, right? Level playing field. So getting respect on the other side is key. And in order to get a respect, listening, asking very insightful questions, questions that brings to the surface their pain. If you can do that, they are going to realize, wow, they know more about me than most people or often even themselves. They may go, they go into self-discovery and they go, well, I don't know how to answer that. But that's a good question. And if that event happens in the brain, you're going to get more respect right there. I used to help companies uh, develop business plans. This was like in the early 2000s. And uh, sometimes people ask, uh, similar people in my field would ask, oh, uh, do you have a business plan? Can I make a business plan for you? And uh, instead, I will ask, well, how well are you guys running your, your company according to your business plan? Well, that's a deep question, right? What they're going to go is, in their mind, they may go, oh, oh, shoot, I don't even have a business plan. What do you mean by how well am I running my company according to my business plan? The second is, even if they had one, how many of them actually run the business according to the business plan? Well, from there, you can ask more probing questions. What are some of the challenges they're, they're facing? And from there, what kind of problems they're, they're experiencing? And that surfaces a lot of the pain that they have, they may not even know on a daily basis. They don't wake up in the morning going, I have this pain. They go to the office and they start solving problems, right? And they're normally solving problems around the symptom, not the cause. Absolutely. Like uh, in, this, in that negotiation I, to- I told you about, my clients and, and account manager, everyone had a good intention. But initial, the intention and the, and the conversation was, how can we give the $50,000 to this teardown? Where can we, basically, where can we compromise? How are we going to compromise that, right? Yeah. We have an invoice they owe us, but our invoice is, doesn't reflect our true cost. So if we tell them they don't have to pay that invoice, we're really not giving up 50000 So we're kind of splitting the difference in a different way, right? These are all just different ways of splitting the difference and compromising. It strikes me that one of the critical factors that you're bringing to your clients is that you're offering them leadership and a safe pair of hands. You're protecting them from themselves until they can work out how to do it for themselves. Is that fair? That's fair. That's absolutely the truth. These are skills that people can learn and uh, do by themselves, but a lot of people do not have this training. Until I met Jim Camp, it's not like you can go to college and learn how to negotiate well. You may end up reading a book or two on negotiation and learn how to compromise elegantly, but that's about it. (laughs) What I find is that if you understand the core principles of human behavior, if you're a student of psychology and you focus on the principles What I see a lot of is people being seduced by the tactics, and the tactics don't always deliver quite the same predictable response if they're not underpinned by uh, core principles. So what are the core beliefs and values 
that great negotiators possess. Great negotiators possess a sense of curiosity, authenticity, integrity. They're good listeners. They understand that decisions are made emotionally and then they're justified rationally. This is just using neuroscience and decision science in our work in trying to get agreements. So once we understand that decisions are driven emotionally, we look for what emotions they are currently experiencing related to the frustration or the pain that they have. Once we understand that emotion and help them see the emotion and the pain, it is much easier for them to embrace or see a solution that you're going to present to them. That's good. What about mental conditioning? Because again, what I see a lot of in sales, and I'm sensing it in your world as well, is because salespeople, certainly salespeople, the majority of salespeople have a people-pleasing approval addiction. They are conflict avoiders. They're afraid of conflict because they don't understand that conflict can be constructive as well as destructive. Um, and they, can't, they don't separate the two. I'm really curious to get to grips with that mindset that a good negotiator needs to go into a negotiation and how they prepare through planning, the execution, practice, repetition, capturing lessons. Well, a lot of times we've heard of salespeople saying, we, only do, we do business with people we like and trust, right? That's great. And that's sales. But in negotiation, I don't have that luxury. Often when I'm pulled into a negotiation, my client's counterpart don't like them and they don't trust them. It's the same in sales. No one trusts salespeople. Where's all that garbage floating around from? We do business with, uh, only with people that we like and trust. It's all bullshit. Oh, thank you. So we agree. This is awesome. I told you yeah. we are like brothers. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Different mother. <laughs> <laughs> I need to talk to my dad. <laughs> well, the, the need to be liked, that need to be liked actually stems from fear. The fear of rejection and the fear of loss, right? There's about four types of fear. Fear of rejection, fear of loss, fear of pain, and fear of unknown. And fear of being found out. Oh, discovered. Yeah. Oh. And <laughs> then what happens? Syndrome. Then you'll be rejected. Yeah, yes. Absolutely. Found out as a fake. Yeah. Well, if someone has this fear of rejection, they would try to be liked. And the problem with negotiation is trying to be liked will cause you to compromise. So in, our, in, in order to prepare for a negotiation, we have to get into, the, get into doing some role play, right? Understanding what our mission and purpose is. What do we want to accomplish? What is the desired outcome? What is the problem that we need to solve during this step of the negotiation? Sometimes the problem is simply our own baggage. It could be someone on our team saying, I don't like that guy. I hate that guy. He's a shyster. He's a swindler. Don't want to work with them. Well, the problem is we have to work with them. So what do we do? Internally, before we even engage, we have to address that baggage. It could be as simply as, well, then you don't need to be on this team. Just just, just kind of step down from this team and we'll go take, take care of it with another, uh, like another team member. Another one would be to just kind of go through some coaching and address where is that originating from, that dislike. So once you've dumped that baggage, then you're more prepared to go into negotiation and be able to listen. Because if you are not able to dump that baggage, it's going to be very hard to control your emotions, right? In the back of the mind, he's sitting in front of the, the counterpart. And in the back of his mind is, I don't trust this guy. I don't like anything he says. Anything he says is going to be filled with, uh, I'm, I'm going to suspect it. It's going to be filled with suspicion. He's going to question it. He's going to be skeptical. And now then what happens is a self-fulfilling prophecy happens. He can't really go into curiosity mode, ask good questions, because he's got an emotional baggage. So getting rid of the, some of these emotional baggages, dealing with uh, managing them, dumping them, addressing them up front, those are all good ways to prepare to engage with the other side. Absolutely. And again, the alignment between what you're teaching and what I'm teaching is 100%. If you go into a sale with the 
wrong frame of mind, the wrong mindset, unprepared, then chances are the moment you get put under pressure, your amygdala gets hijacked, you move into freeze, flight, or fight. The minute that happens, you start to project out that you're needy, desperate, broke, or the other person picks up on it. And if they're a savvy buyer, they'll exploit it. If they're not so savvy, then they get very uncomfortable and they start to think, well, there's something wrong here. And they get that feeling in their gut that tells them that you can't be trusted. And if you don't raise the objections and you wait for them to do so, chances are it's going to be at their time of choosing, not yours. And it's like Sun Tzu said, the best kind of victory is the one where you never raise a finger. There's that wonderful story. I can't remember the name of the general, but he's being pursued by an army of 10,000 soldiers. And he sits on the postern gate of the city. He's got a small troop marching up and down. They leave the gate open and he plays chess whilst this army surrounds them. And he leaves the gate open and they start to think, shit, he must have a really strong defense because there's no way he'd be doing that otherwise. And so they run away. And he only had a couple of hundred people. That's the art of fighting without fighting. Absolutely. You're Bruce Lee, you're Bruce Lee guy, right? Uh, absolutely. Well, <laughs> again, proper selling, professional salesmanship is all about, I think the best salespeople are intelligently lazy. The victory is won in the planning. It's not won in the battlefield. It's won in the planning. And so few salespeople, and at this I have a real issue with, because I firmly believe it's an act of gross misconduct. When you consider how much time, money, effort, resource, opportunity cost goes into building your pipeline and getting one decent opportunity into the pipeline, and you have salespeople whose total preparation is basically from the car to the customer's office or from their office to the boardroom, and then they wing it. That's they like to wing shameful. it and they like to show up and throw up. It's what I... <laughs> uh, absolutely. Some research that we've done recently talks about 83% of first meetings never result in a second meeting. Wow. And KPMG did a study recently where they identified that for every hour salespeople are in front of a prospect, the prospect only derives six minutes of value. Is it any wonder that four in five meetings never go to a second meeting. Now, when you consider the lack of preparation by the second or the third or the fourth meeting, because salespeople have no control, they don't know what they want. And as a result of that, what happens is sales cycles drag on. You end up with a pipeline that looks like Kim Kardashian. It bulges at the bottom because they can't <laughs> move stuff forward. They can't drive. You know, There's no velocity. Then forecasting gets shot to pieces. If you can't forecast, you can't plan. If you can't plan, you can't invest in advance. You're always being reactive. And you see this happen all the time because of lack of preparation. And this is the next thing I want to talk about, which is discipline. The rigor that is required to be prepared to develop yourself and to ensure uh, that you are constantly learning from every interaction. If you are not walking out of every interaction with at least one to three lessons, you've wasted your time. So, what are the disciplines that you're teaching your clients? Well, the discipline is, it seems simple, right? So it's about uh, preparing, like you said. And then the next step is briefing your team. Then the next step is executing. This is the sexy part of negotiation where all the books are written on is the execution. How do we say what we say? Is it the tone? What's it the volume? Is it the words? Our body language? These are the fun part. And then the least sexy part is the debrief. This is the after action uh, report that you talked about. What did I do? What did I learn? What was, what was the budget? Like uh, how much are they willing to invest in this? Who, who makes what type of decision? Not just the decision maker. Who makes what type of decision? Where is the pain? Did we discover any new pain during this encounter? And what does the timeline looks like? Is there any sense of urgency? Have we tested that? Next is what does execution looks like? What are the constraints? Are there any deal killers that we found out? What's going to be a showstopper? Once you have all this, 
you're prepared for the next interaction. So the discipline of planning, briefing your team, executing, and debrief, that's a process that I teach, that I train, that I coach. That's a discipline. It has to happen every single day for every single interaction they go into. And so when they do it, no matter whether it's an email or a phone call or an in-person visit, they're planning the same way. It's not easy because there's going to be times where uh, they want to wing it. They want to just walk in and they just want to see what happens. Well, that's when we see failure. That's a sackable offense in my book. I think it's a waste of your client's time when you don't prepare properly, right? And so it's kind of like martial arts and like boxing. So everyone knows what a jab looks like. Everyone knows what a cross looks like. What's the difference between someone who knows that and sits on the couch and the guy who is in the in the boxing ring in the gym training every single day? It's the discipline of doing it over and over and over again. Absolutely. And this comes back to a fundamental principle, which is you need to do the basics well, consistently, over time, and mean it. And very few people have the stamina or the conviction to constantly invest in the basics. What I see is that they're looking for the next shiny object, the next glamorous tactic and technique. And that's crazy. You see this when, for example, an RFP lands on your desk and people in sales are so often so eager to respond to the RFP, they don't ask the right kind of questions. If an RFP lands on your desk and it's going to take three man weeks to complete it and you've got seven days to submit, you have to ask the question, why are they leaving it so late? Um, because you're the gonna... fool. They have already decided who they're going with, and you're just going to provide them with another set of numbers, right? <laughs> so they're going to use you as the whipping boy, column fodder. Exactly. Um, because most RFPs are not legitimate. An obvious question is, so Alan, tell me, where are you in your decision-making process? Are you gathering information? Are you defining the requirement and the specifications? Or are you at the point where you're ready to select a partner? The first two are basically fishing for free consulting and trying to identify what your pricing is so that they can beat up their preferred supplier. Sometimes they already have a supplier that's making it for them. They're just going to go through the, the routine action of just looking for another supplier, take the new price, go to the existing supplier and go, well, someone has got this offer. Can you improve your pricing this year? Absolutely. You're just doing the work for them. Well, I'll give you a fantastic example. One of my oldest friends, works in media and he was invited to get involved in an RFP and he went back and he asked the questions and one of the questions that he asked is well how many other companies have you sent this out to 52 wow 52 and all they were going to do was use this to build up a spreadsheet and get pricing they had no intention of buying now when you think about the cost of a pursuit win or lose you know, in enterprise, you're talking tens of thousands if you're lucky, and up into the seven, even eight figures sometimes to pursue an opportunity. So I think part of the problem is that a lot of salespeople, and I'm guessing a lot of poor negotiators, don't really understand the value of their own time. And if you want other people to respect you and your time, then if you don't respect your own, then frankly, serves you right. Exactly. Totally agree. So let me ask you a question, Marcus. Go ahead. Have you heard salespeople go, well, you got to be in it to win it. So even though there are 50, we got to be in there, right? Yeah, absolutely. Idiots do that. You don't have to be in it. You only have to be in it if it's right for you and you have a fighting chance of winning it and making a profit and the prospect is not going to be a pain in the ass because a lot of them are and that you can do it on your terms. This is where too many people compromise because what they do is they think, and the reason they do it bluntly is they have no pipeline. If they had a full pipeline. Exactly. But I think to my clients that there are three metrics. One is the number of daily unique effective conversations with genuine prospects in their target market. And that means they actually have to make the phone call get past the gatekeeper, get through to the decision maker and contract with them that at the end of 30 second commercial, 
they will agree to either hang up or invite them in. Now, if they do five to seven of those a day on average, that will be enough for most professional services, most tech companies, most manufacturing businesses to fill their pipeline with a quality pipeline. The second is the velocity, the speed with which opportunities move through the funnel from suspect to prospect to qualified prospect to closable prospect to closed and then cross-sell and upsell. And the third is the volume of qualified opportunities moving to closable. And my rule of thumb is that within seven months of us working together, you need to get 300% more at the qualified stage moving to closable, and within 12 months, 500%. That way, on average, you will do your annual quota every 12 weeks. Now, if you do that, you have all the breathing space in the world to be able to walk away from bad business. And something I see in technology that's really flabbergasted me that they haven't after 35 years of having this done to them is buyers know that salespeople who have a weak or empty pipeline and are desperate to hit their target. And bear in mind, last year, fewer than 44, I think it was 44 or 46% of salespeople globally hit their quota. Okay. Wow. Yeah, exactly. And only 6% of managers are qualified to be in a sales management job worldwide. Is it any wonder that you have these terrible practices? Okay. But the challenge here is that given that they are so needy and desperate and they're waiting till the end of the month, the end of the quarter, or worse, the end of the year, they've convinced salespeople that they have to have a fire sale. Now, actually, if you're smart and your pipeline is strong, what you can say is, Alan, you know, we could wait until the end of the quarter and then discount, but we're not going to do that. And let me tell you why that's not in your interests. If you wait until then, when we're implementing your project, you'll get whoever is available. Now, tell me something. How important exactly is this to you? Not very. Okay. So tell me something. Do you want our A players? implementing the strategic solution that you are currently investing in? Or do you want our B and C players? Because if you order now, and we break ground on this project today, then you'll get our A players. Or you can play the lottery. You pick. That's great. I love that story because that goes into one of the ideas or, or, or principles we talk about is helping the other parties see the risk that they are about to take. Absolutely. So this decision to delay it, you are not going to hide it from them. You bring it up to the surface and you actually say, you could do this, but essentially, how much risk are you willing to take by going to a C player? Absolutely. And I was training one of my managed service providers yesterday, and it was really fascinating because they were, you know, they were really struggling to sell at premium. And you need to think of it. In fact, it was Gary Nesner that came up with the analogy, but I've stolen it. So he's had credit once, now it's mine. And, <laughs> and it, it's like trying to convince a mule to move, okay? If you take the mule from the front and you offer it a carrot and you give it the incentive, then it'll walk and it'll go where you want it to. But if you stand behind it and you try and push, it'll just dig in its heels. And when it's had enough, it'll kick you. And yep. this is where a lot of IT projects fail because what happens is they get imposed and they don't invest the time up front in getting the users on board before they break ground on the project so that the users feel like they've had input and their fingerprints are all over it. And you set their expectations so that they know what disruption is coming. And you and I are both in the same business. We sell change. And nobody likes change. We are programmed as a species to be conservative with a small c. We resist change. We're uncomfortable with it. And our natural instinct is to look for what feels familiar. So right. if we try and convince somebody that change is a good thing. They will resist. That's pushing from the back of the mule. If, on the other hand, you take them through a process, through your insightful questions, challenging, demanding questions, where they begin to realize for themselves why staying stuck is a rut. And my favorite definition of a rut is a coffin with both ends kicked out. <laughs> <laughs> and why staying stuck is bad for them 
And the pain of staying stuck is worse than the pain of change. Then they volunteer to make that move. Self-discovery is one of the steps that we use in in the negotiation. And this step, what do we want the other party to see for themselves, right? And that comes from asking some powerful questions. And sometimes these these questions are challenging. And uh, questions are funny because over the over the last two decades, you've probably seen it. Uh, a lot of salespeople just show up and throw up, and now they are they some of them are getting smarter, so they ask questions. But the problem is, some of them say, "Well, the one with the most questions win," or they come up with a whole series of questions. And I go, "Well, this is not the this is not an interrogation or the Great Inquisition. So, what is the one question you want to ask during this one meeting?" Right, which is the the one question that will get them to see what you want them to see. Absolutely. And again, that requires intelligence, curiosity, and patience. You need to plan. You need to put the time in, the, the, the effort into really thinking about what that one or two or three questions would be that would help them go through that process of self-discovery. And th- actually, this brings me to something else that I'd, that I'd like to finish on which is listening. And in particular, what you teach your clients about listening to between the lines to what's not being said. Listening when you ask the question to one person and then observing how other people react both to the question and the answer. Well, there's a lot of different uh, skills within listening, whether it's paraphrasing, using silence, using minimal encouragers, being able to summarize the situation, tagging and emotions. Those are all really good listening skills. To look between the lines, I sometimes, one of the, the things I do is uh, I look at the body language. Not when they are, not during the early stages of our conversation, because sometimes people are very guarded. But when their guard is down and you're having a conversation, you're having a comfortable conversation, and um, let's say you make a proposal, they may or may not agree to it. And so you have to look, you have, looking between the lines, what I like looking at is their eyes. And there are different thoughts there. Some people say the eyes are the easiest way to deceive people. But what I'm looking for is the missing inner th- canthus, that little pink triangle that is uh, the, where the tear duct is. When someone is skeptical about what you're saying, or they squint a little bit, and the minute they squint, you don't see that triangle. And that tells you that they are not quite on board with whatever you are proposing. So when someone is totally relaxed and they're listening, you can see that pink triangle. That's a really interesting observation. I'd never heard of that before, so I'll pay attention to that now. Thank you. Tell me, what are you reading to, listening to, watching that you're really impressed by at the moment or that maybe in the last 12 months? Well, I started a book called, the title is, it's just started, it's called The Rise of Superman. Oh, uh, so yeah, Stephen Kotler, very good. Yes, it's, a, it's fantastic. He talks about the flow and getting into the flow. And it's a great book for those who wants to just up the game and perform better. I think one of the really interesting principles in that book is that in order to achieve flow, you have to have practiced. You know, if you're being helicoptered onto the top of a mountain, and you've got one meter of snow beneath you, and the next is you know, 20 feet down, and you've got jagged rocks in between. You better be in your fast system rather than your slow system. So you can't be thinking consciously. And the only way to do that is perfect practice. Again, another Bruce Leeism. Only perfect practice makes perfect. Practice doesn't. If you keep practicing bad behaviors and reinforcing those, then you're really going to struggle. And that's why I think it's so important that in negotiation and in selling, you work with partners who are going to tell you the cold, hard truth. When you're blowing, if you've got a coach, make sure you get one that doesn't mind having difficult conversations with you and holding up the ugly mirror. Absolutely. So you can practice, practice, practice. It's what I called, first, you've got to know what to do. And then the second step is then do it. You can't just do it and not know what to do. Those are the two uh, parts of a successful uh, uh, equation. You got to know what you're going to have to do, and then you got to do it. 
Another book I like reading recently, it's just about, you know, conflict resolution, bridging cultural conflicts by Michelle LeBaron. And uh, right. it talks about uh, uh, cultural fluency, understanding different uh, cultures and, and uh, how conflict uh, arises and how to bridge that gap. So as a negotiator, a lot of times the conflicts that we experience is uh, it's, it's cultural in nature. And so understanding that is key. Don't know if you've come across it, but Just Listen by Mark Goulston. I've mentioned it on many of my podcasts. If you haven't read it, it's fabulous. It's certainly the best book I've ever come across on developing listening as a habit and listening as a whole body experience. He also wrote another fascinating book called Talking to Crazy, uh, which is about the inner dialogue that you have with yourself. Because if you can't deal with that crazy person first, um, oh boy! With someone else. I yeah. love I love that book already. <laughs> In fact, Keith Cunningham wrote another book. The title itself sells it, which is "The Road Less Stupid." I oh. think you'll really appreciate that one too. Okay, tell me this: you, you've got a golden ticket, and you can go back to the idiot Alan, age twenty-three. What advice would you give him to make his life easier, avoid a lifetime of self-sabotage? and other forms of idiocy? Oh, boy. Well, the, <laughs> first is, uh, the first is to learn how to manage my emotions. So learn how to, how to manage your own emotions before you can influence other people's emotions. The second one is just to truly learn how to listen to people without interrupting, passing judgments, and, and trying, to, trying to tell your side of the story before the other party gets to tell theirs. So just kind of listening to people, what is their pain? What, is, what are they hurting from? What is it that they want? I think even as parents, if I look back, uh, and, uh, I have kids uh, that are from uh, 11 all the way up to 25. I look back and I go, if I was a better listener as a dad, I'll be a better dad. That, my favorite poem is by Philip Larkin, and it's called This Be The Verse. And they fuck you up, your mum and dad. They don't mean to, but they do. They fill you with all the faults they had, and they add some extra just for you. And then there's the final verse: "Is man hands on misery to man? It deepens like a coastal shelf. Get out as early as you can, and don't have any kids yourself." <laughs> oh boy. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, final question then: What are you struggling with, or wrestling with, either in life or in business? Right now, I feel really blessed. I have a lot of clients I like working with. and um, You're pretty much at full capacity, I saw. I'm almost full capacity, and I'm booking for next year now. I'm wow. booking workshop for next year. And um, so my biggest problem right now is scaling. I like what I'm doing, and so I'm trying to find out how can I, how can I, how can I have more valent for my clients. And so the way I'm trying to approach that is just uh, collaborating with other good uh, negotiation coaches and, and trainers out there. So this year, that is one of my focus and just kind of beef up the system, collaborate and uh, do marketing. Okay. There are a couple of books that you might like to look up. One is called The Success Cadence. That's by Dave Matson, Tom Shodorf, and Bart Fanelli. And... Tom and Bart drove or were part of the drive to take Splunk from 63 million to 1.1 billion in five years. And they have some really powerful advice there in terms of recruiting, structure, framework, values, belief, systems, processes, all that kind of stuff. And that's really powerful. And the other one is Dave Matson's The Road to Excellence. And that maps out a process to take people through organizational scale. So it begins with the plan, the vision, the mission, then designing the roles and the positions in advance of ever hiring them. So you might be designing roles that you're going to require in two or three years' time. Then looking at the people that you have and seeing if you can fit them into the roles as they uh, are required making sure that you either you never compromise on recruitment better no breath than bad breath you train them you move them into a a role where they are better suited or you move them out of the business and you make sure that you've got budget 
uh, planned. So when you've hit your revenue goals and your growth goals, then you can hire the people. So you need to build a bench of people, a, a bench of prospective hires, then looking at the processes that you need in order to scale your business, and then how you're going to measure the performance and measure using leading indicators. And that's a continuous process, really powerful. And sounds fact, very interesting. Yeah, oh, it's fascinating. And, you know, so I've developed a program for people who are looking to scale. So my target audience is companies of 10 to 50 million in tech that are looking to grow from there to a billion dollars over the next five to eight years. And they want to grow at 200% per annum at least without the wheels coming off. And so myself and my co-author of our book, Making Channel Sales Work, have developed a program specifically to help people scale. Now, I was speaking to one of my network contacts today, and he's got an investor who was scaling cr like crazy. They'd signed a marketing agreement with them, and just before Christmas, ran out of cash. That's avoidable. And the key is to make sure that you focus your attention on the leading indicators, planning ahead, so that like Napoleon and Sun Tzu, make sure that you're thinking through what's likely to happen. What are the contingencies you need to build in place? What if, what if? If A happens, then what do I do? If B happens, what do I do? If B then happens, and these are the possible outcomes. And you need to spend time planning. You can plan scale, but the problem is that if you grow too fast, then what happens is you find a few things occur. You run out of cash, you overtrade, customer experience suffers, so then you're dealing with complaints, and now you're firefighting, then you're putting out fires. That takes you away from strategic thinking design. There's a lovely model that I think it was Mike McCallowitz came up with it, the author of Profit First. And you divide your page into four quadrants, and it's do, decide, delegate, and design. And what you find is as the business scales, the business owner or the founder spends more and more time doing because they don't delegate or they don't trust their people. And as a result, decisions are pushed up the organization instead of down, and they spend next to no time on design. So that's another interesting model. We can talk about that another time. Oh, yeah, fascinating. That's a, that's a problem a lot of companies have. The thing is that there's a challenge with people like me, right? The thing is, I like helping companies. Uh, part of it is uh, a lot of my clients, if they if they could, would like to hire me full time. But I just call myself, well, I just uh, let's let's stay with me, just coaching you guys and being your interim uh, chief negotiation officer. Because at the end of the day, Marcus, people like us are kind of unemployable and fireproof. <laughs> <laughs> exactly so it's this been fun marcus really I, I enjoy i enjoyed this conversation with you likewise thank you so much look alan how can people get hold of you well there's two ways they can reach me one is i'm quite active on linkedin because i get to share my content with a lot of people interact with theirs because it's a fun platform for me so on linkedin it's alan a-l-l-a-n sang there's a silent t T-S-A-N-G. Or you can just go to my website and it's uh, there's a new version coming up. But right now, there's still 88, the number 88, and then the, the bird owls, O-W-L-S.com. So 88owls.com. And uh, you can get me on LinkedIn. Fabulous. Alan Sang, thank you so much. Really looking thank forward you, to taking the conversation further as well. And I hope you'll come back. I would love to come back anytime. You just uh, just say the word. I'll be back here and have a conversation with you. Excellent. This is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this conversation illuminating and helpful, then please like, comment, and share. And if you believe that you would make a great guest on my podcast, then please contact me either via LinkedIn or on my email, M-C-A-U-C-H-I at Sandler, S-A-N-D-L-E-R.com. Or you can phone me on 07515-937-221. And if there's someone who you really think would be a great person for me to interview, please make the introduction to the two of us. I'd love to find out who you think is really interesting. 
And we want to talk about sales negotiation, channel, enterprise, hiring, firing, accountability, all that kind of stuff that's going to be of interest to people who want to scale their business and keep lots and lots of their profit instead of giving it away through discounting and acts of other stupidity. That's Marcus Kauke signing off. Happy selling.